internet brand strategist Sandra Beck interviews top business coaches, speakers, authors, and thought leaders to bring you the best business tips, tricks, and techniques to give your idea the best possible chance for success. From writing your first novel, to telecommuting from home, to taking your small business to infinity and beyond. Now here's your host, Sandra Beck. everybody. This is Sandra Beck and I'm here with Sharon Silver and we're going to talk today about mindful parenting. And this is such a great topic for me because I mean, Sharon, we've known each other a long time and, and done many shows together, but the trend in parenting is shifting and it used to be like all about the kids that it was all about the parents and now I'm finding myself completely confused. So I'm good that I'm glad that you're here <laughs> to clarify some of these things. What is mindful parenting? And honestly, why should we listen to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, no pressure. No um, pressure. None whatsoever. <laughs> none whatsoever. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And mindful parenting is is as confusing to you as it is to everybody else right now because it's in the beginning stages. And I would say that the, a lot of parents really do believe that if I change my basic um, natural parenting way and I become more zen-like and more yoga-like and calmer, that that is being a mindful parent. Now, breathing and meditation, great stuff. Big, you know, big big amount in my life. I really enjoy it. I use it and it does work, but that's not enough. So mindful parenting really addresses how do I become who I truly am? I'm outgoing. I'm silly. I'm funny. And I'm also your parent and I'm firm and I don't want to harm you. There's a wonderful, um, statement out there that says, couldn't we just focus on raising children that didn't have to go into therapy? <laughs> so I think, yeah, you know, I, I really believe that this is kind of, we've all been working on ourselves. We've been acknowledging, you know, our own empowerment. And now it's extending to our relationship with our children. So basically, the bottom line that I would say with being mindful is that, um, you know how the times when you plug into that automatic autopilot parenting, so you're, you, you know, life has gotten monotonous and then your kid says something to you and boom, it just comes right out of your mouth. The goal here is that mindful parenting is about being aware of everything you say and do in the moment, mm -hmm. which is a huge amount of pressure. What I'm trying to do is bring mindfulness into um, stopping your reactions and how do you respond? But more, most importantly, for many parents, what I'm trying to do is say you can do this with your firm authority. In being calm, in being mindful, there is no wiggle room. Right. So your child instantly gets the message, I'm serious, sweetheart. This is your lesson. I'm here to support you, but you have to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, I find, you know, and this is, this is something that I've, I've, I, I don't understand, and maybe you can shed some light on it. You know, as a single mom with my two boys, I get invited and included a lot of things. I'm like 
the, when the husband can't make something, I'm the date, you know? <laughs> and so I do spend a lot of time in other people's families. And it's always astounding to me, you know, I'm who I am in my business, in my office, and I'm the same person that I am at home. And I hear sometimes parents say things to their kids, either grown or, you know, little kids. They would never say in an office. They would never say in, in, um, I don't know, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't act this way in the grocery store. And I remember a time when I was really little and (laughs) like, I love my mom and you know, God rest her soul. She's going to come back from the grave and be like, I can't believe you said that on the air. But one time she was yelling at all of us kids, you know, it was like, you know, five, six of us running around the cellar. This was back East and where it was cold and we could only play in the center in the, um, the cellar in the winter. And we were swinging on the poles that supported the house and falling on the concrete and cracking our heads. So my mom is like, you guys weren't watching your little brother. Now he's got a big bump on his head. And blah, blah, blah. She picks up the phone. And she's like, hello, Beck residence. <laughs> You know, why do we do that? Why do we come home and think that, not everyone, but why do many people come home and think, oh, well, we're home now, so all bets are off? Because we can be mindful, right, at work. We can be mindful in the grocery store of our behavior, but the minute the, the front door shuts, all bets are off. Um, I think it's a two-pronged answer. Number one, somewhere deep inside of us, we have a belief about the value of our children and the value of our relationship with our children. And what we tend to forget is that it is our job with our children. We're installing the foundation of everything they will believe from now on. So when you scream and yell, basically what you're telling your children is this is how adults handle situations like this. So go ahead and scream and yell because a child just doesn't know. The other thing a child doesn't know is a child doesn't know that you're not the most intense parent that ever lived. They don't know there's a parent down the street that's more intense than you are. So all they know is that your yelling feels like thunder to them. Mm -hmm. And so the reaction across the board in every family is going to be the same. The child is yelled at and becomes emotionally stunned and emotionally flooded. And the feelings of, I can represent myself, can you meet my needs? They're not being addressed. All the child's focusing on is, you yelled at me and I don't like it. It upsets my feelings. So when you're sitting there trying to talk to them after, um, you know, instead of being mindful, you've been reactive, they can't hear you. But the key here is that all children will listen to you if they feel heard. So you always begin by hearing your child. The second thing is, I don't know um, whenever parents come home, they want, they have a, how can I put this? They have a deep-seated belief that children should obey them. And if they yell, that means that they're showing their intensity. And their intensity means that's their authority. Mm. And so somewhere deep inside, our society has an idea that having kids suffer in order to listen or learn is the way to go. Mm-hmm. So that's why we, we accept spanking and punishing and slapping. And then, of course, there's, you know, um, how you view yourself out in the world. 
your mother picked up the phone and said, Beck residence. <laughs> so she had her persona on. Right. Um, but what she was really feeling is, are you kidding me? Do I have to go to the doctor with you people? Will you people ever listen to me? <laughs> so, it, you know, it's different. There's different levels of all of this and there's differences in every household. But, um, you know, being mindful, I think if you look at what Webster says, Webster says that, uh, mindfulness means the practice of maintaining a non-judgmental state of heightened or complete awareness of one's thoughts, emotions, or experiences. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could do that 24-7. No, no. You know, and it's funny, you know, when we were talking about, you know, you said something really powerful that said, you know, when somebody yells, um, you know, right after that, you can't, they don't listen to you. You know, they can't hear you. You know, they're I'm going to tell you when somebody yells, like for me, I have the innate ability to freeze like a stone. When somebody yells at me, as soon as their voice goes up, I turn like, I'm like, whatever that pillar of salt lady was in the Bible, only I stayed like that. <laughs> and I don't hear anything. You know, I was married right. to a man who was a yeller. And when he would yell, like two hours later, he's like, you know, you didn't hear anything I said. And I'm like, you're right. Because a lot of us just freeze like stone or freeze like ice when we're yelled at and nothing comes in. That's right. And so, you know, we accept that for ourselves and we use that as a way to um, explain how we are in relationship with each other. But we forget that's our child and the child has no choice but to use immature thinking to understand and decode what's happening to them. So all they see is that you're yelling at me, you think I'm less than, and I'm frozen on that point. Yeah. So a lot of parents will come to me and say, but I'm mindful after I send them to timeout, I'll sit and talk with them about it. I'm like, okay, well, that's really good, except are you needing to send your child to timeout again and again? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because they're not hearing you. Right. They're not getting it. Right. Well, and the so, one thing, like my kids said, Sharon, that was really funny. You know, we talk a lot about like, you know, the different households and stuff because, you know, we're divorced and they're remarried on the other side with other, other people in the household. Um, is my kids made a really good point a while ago. We were talking about something and they said, oh, so-and-so at dad's house got really mad and was yelling at me that I was out of control. My little one is really active. <laughs> like climb the walls, active, bounce out the couch, active. And he looked at me and he said, mom, he goes, they're so upset that I'm out of control. <laughs> they're screaming at me out of control about being out right. of control. He's like, how funny is that? And there's a point to it. There's a major point to it because we tend to think that our children are not able to observe and understand the rules of how you behave, but they know our face far better than we know our face. They know full well that we are yelling and doing what we told them not to that's and right. that that's counterintuitive. They're not stupid. Right. You know, we push them and say, you're not stupid. You could do anything. It's like, well, if I'm not stupid, then please treat me with a modicum of respect so that you understand that. I mean, a child is really clear that he's willing to place his focus, whether he listens or, co or cooperates, it's all determined by the way you send the information. Right. So if you send the information riding on yelling, then the child is going to place his focus on the fact that he's being yelled at. Mm -hmm. It's just human nature. But if you send words in in a calm way, while you're still showing that you have authority, like saying things like, 
wow, you look really upset. I would really appreciate it if you would say it again in a way my ears can hear it. Mm -hmm. So what you're doing is you're taking the child through cause and effect. You're even, you're asking them to think about what they said. So there are certain words you can use when you're being mindful, when it's um, framed correctly, that work brilliantly to cut through all of that. Oh, my favorite try again. one. Like, I just have to jump in right now. Try again. I yeah, try use again. all the time. You taught me that years ago. And now that I have a teenager yeah. and a preteen, which, you know, we're like, hormones are us in our house, so you never know who's going to show up. And, you know, sometimes they're really snotty. My kid's suitcase fell out of the back of my car because it was parked on an angle. And he's like, good job, mom. He's like, way to put my suitcase in. He goes, what if my PlayStation broke? I won't be able to use it dad's all weekend. And I just sat there and I'm like, try again. It's like a miracle drug. It is. It is a miracle statement because what it does is it allows you to take a breath and reassess because there isn't a parent alive that doesn't want to launch at their child. It's like, sure. don't you dare talk to me that way. Who do you think is paying for all of that? Where do you get off? You can say all of that in a calmer way afterwards. Right. But what is going to cut through that attitude? Now, when I heard you told this, tell the story, my awareness, my mindfulness kicked in. And my, my comment would be, yeah, I need you to try again. And I also want you to think about how anxious are you about going to your father's this yeah. weekend? You know, so it'd be immediately when you start looking for those clues, you see what's motivating their attitude. Yeah. And yeah. You're they really don't good go. at that. You know, they yeah. go and they just, you know, they like, love their dad, don't get me wrong, but they don't like the other household and it's, you know, they have to be on their best behavior. It's not home. And so, you know, right. we do get those little blips of like re-entry and then leaving. Like when they come back home, right. we get some blips. And when we, when they're leaving to go to their dads, we get some blips. Right. But so, they're, you know, too. Like that's the other thing in mindfulness um, and I'd love to talk about this with you because, you know, Sharon, not everything is a national emergency in a household. I've got some parent friends that are like, the kid comes home from school, you think the Pope showed up, first of all. And then you, you know, the kid does something, not everything is an actual offense. Right. I mean, really, yeah. I mean, I've got some friends who ride their kids for every little thing and then they're, they wonder why their kid's blinking, you know, and rocking and, and, you know, pulling on his eyebrows. I mean, these are, you know, when you look at your kid, you can also look at them and go, you know, they are a fellow human being. Exactly. Exactly. You nailed it. This is a fellow human being who has been entrusted to me to be raised by me. So my attitude, the way that I deal with these things, what I've brought forward from my childhood is being deposited in this child's foundation. Is that what I want? Do I want this? I call it, um, you know, um, I can't think of it. Um, following it down the chain. In other words, there's a chain that links all the generations together. Am I going to bring what was done to me into my family of origin? And for me, it was about yelling and screaming and smacking and, um, and diminishing. And I wasn't going to do it. Right. Me neither. You know, me neither. I mean, I wasn't, my mom was kind of a yeller and a slammer. She wasn't really a hitter, but she could slam the, the worst one I hated was the silverware drawer. 
you know, and like you slam the silverware drawer because you get that secondary rattle, you know, that really like, you know, goes through your bones. And so, you know, loud noises like that are startling. And, you know, as babies, we're, we're born with two fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud noises. So when you look at what's the best way to rattle somebody's cage, a loud noise, you know, like think of an explosion in a war. What are we, what are we fearful of? Loud noises. So, you know, I had that thing where I, I really, I don't like loud noises and I don't like to be frightened. And I don't think frightening gets results. Well, no. I mean, you have to think about it in terms of who you are. These are just mini use. They're just shorter than you and they use immature thinking, but they don't like any of the things that you don't like either. Yeah. Nobody wants to be screamed at. Nobody wants to be yelled at. Nobody wants to be hit. Um, everybody wants the respect of, here are some questions that I'm going to ask you and I'm going to ask you to pull it through your brain so that you are able to see cause and effect and learn about yourself as we go through this process. When you scream at a child, you're shutting them down. Mm -hmm. It's just a fact. You're shutting them down and causing them to focus on the fact that, um, that they've been screamed at, not on what they need to learn. Right. Now, you know, you, you brought up another point and that is when your son, um, when the suitcase fell out of the back of the car, we'll use this as a great example. Um, for a lot of parents, it's about shutting down those big emotions. Now you're really good at this and you and I've talked off air. So I know you're really good at this, but mm -hmm. there are a lot of parents that would go for the attitude that would be their launching point. And the idea here is you're still dealing with a child whose brain is maturing. Mm -hmm. So regardless of the fact that he's a teenager, a lot of parents will say, well, I expect him to act like an adult. Really? Do you? And why? He's not done growing. In fact, he's doing a lot of risky behavior in his teenage years in order to find out whether he should or whether he shouldn't. Mm -hmm. And as a result, he has a lot of, of um, big emotions. So there's, I love Dr. Gordon Newfield from the Newfield Institute, and he's talked about the natural progression of um, feelings. And he suggests, and I found this to work really well, that if you are able to be mindful and let your child go through their natural progression of feelings, that you'll come out with a child who's really ready to hear you. So it starts with rage. And that's what your son, in his own way, some parents' rage would be putting a fist through a wall. Some would be having an attitude. So you know your child best. You're the expert here. Okay? I'm not. I right, have techniques. He say some snappy, mean thing when he's mad. Right. So you know what your child's level of, okay, you're raging. If you take a moment and say, wow, that was a lot of anger. I'm right here whenever you're ready. Watch what happens. He'll go from rage to anger to mad and then sad. And sad, yeah. And even if he touches it just briefly for a moment, if you wait for it, you'll see that he'll come out the other side. It's at the other side that you can begin speaking. But what happens is that most parents yell when the child is raging. And what they've actually done is frozen the child in the stage of rage. Now they're dealing with somebody who's raging instead of somebody who's crying. And, and they're raging. They're dealing with two people yeah. who are raging at that point. Yeah. So, so really and truly being mindful, if you can, is about letting your children process through that natural progression of feelings. When you do that, you're introducing them to their own ability to handle situations. 
oh, I get mad first. I get really mad. Then I get angry. Then I get mad. Then I get sad. And that's when I'm ready to talk. Can you imagine being married to somebody who would come in and say that? Hang in there with me. You know, I tend to get really mad first, but I will come around if you wait. Talk then. See, I'm the exact opposite. I won't say anything like I'll, and then I'll, I'll have to think about what happened. And then I have to kind of feel my feelings like I'm backwards. And then like that afternoon, then I'll be like, I'm mad because, (laughs) you know, like I'm the delayed response mad and you know, we're all Mm -hmm. different. And the one thing that I, I, I don't know if I learned it from you or I can't remember where I learned it, but one, two, three, let's see. Um, Whenever my kids do something, I go in my head and I go, one, two, three, let's see. Meaning, let's see what's going on. Like, don't react right away. Take a pause. Because when I do my one, two, three, let's see, sometimes I just go, hmm. And in the absence of me saying anything, it it requires my kids to think about what they said or what they're doing. Because I'm not telling them what to do. Or I might just go, huh? And then I don't say anything. Well, silence is incredibly powerful for children. You know the old adage, he who speaks first. Um, no, you know, I don't when know you, that one. Oh, it's the adage, he who speaks first loses. Oh. So, you know, I don't really like that, it, that the word is win or lose in there, right. but it is true that if you are silent, then you wait and your child will speak up because the pressure of the silence is enough to really make your point. And you don't have to always be the one to talk because Mm -hmm. what parents are starting to realize, and this is what my goal is, is we've gone through the personal growth movement. We're all aware of how we feel. We talk articulately about our feelings. You know what your pattern is that you, you know, don't say anything and then you come back later. So we're all really clear about that. What we're not clear is what we've brought from our childhood and what we're dumping into our children's Mm -hmm. childhood. And for me, my story was that I'm older than a lot of you. And so I really do come from a time when children were to be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. And you did what you were told, when you were told, or else. Okay, now, if I didn't do what I was told, my mother had a wonderful habit. She had long nails, and she would grab our arm, and she would just squeeze. And that was to let us know we were supposed to be perfect little ladies when we were out in public. If we were anything less than perfect, my mother had a major problem with it. And that was how I was raised. So I had an image ego of what family should be and that children should be perfect. I didn't realize until my son was three and a half years old that what I had done is I had been really replicating what, how I was raised. It wasn't exactly the same way. It was a softer version, but I was still bringing all that trash with me. It wasn't until I reached out to hug him and he recoiled from me that I realized that I had taken my son's love and turned it into fear of me. And that broke my heart. And I realized I was bringing the trash from my childhood into the way that I parented, that I had a ridiculous idea that my authority would cause my child to obey me. They're an independent person. They have lessons of their own. And that's the most mindful thing you can accept is your child is an independent human being that has his own list of lessons. And he has different needs and different lessons he needs to learn. 
Well, and now, that's one uh, thing that I learned the hard way going through the court system with my divorce when the kids were taken away from their dad and, you know, put in, in um, you know, they were given to me, but it really identified to me that these, these are people, these aren't, they're my kids. And then when my kids yeah. went over to their dads for their first overnight, I felt like ripped in half. But that severing happened, you know, when my kids were like three years old. So that concept of now my kids go over to this other household to be raised, to be parented, whatever the father's girlfriend does is part of that parenting thing. And I got a real big dose early on, Sharon, of I don't own these beings. Like I'm entrusted to raise them. And yes, they came from my body. But, you know, I really as painful as it was, I think it made me a better parent to understand that they are in their own right. Because I think a lot mm -hmm. of parents never make that connection that they think these kids are either extensions of themselves or they're somehow their property or they own them. You know, like yeah. when the court tells you, you have to turn over your kids to, you know, these authorities to be given to your mom, you realize, hey, you know, you don't own these kids. But when your kid has to go over court ordered visitation to see the dad, it was a real bucket of cold water that I don't own these children. And I started seeing them very young as their own little beings. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I would have, I don't think I would have had this view otherwise. But when you look at your own children and say, these are little mini humans, they have their own rights and feelings. They have, like you said, their own lessons to learn. I think that's yeah. a whole different parenting thing. Um, because the other thing that was really strange is at one point my kids are in court and my, my older son who's 15 now kept the court open. He refused to go with his father. And he kept the court open after hours. The judge couldn't go home. He sat there like Gandhi. He had learned about Gandhi in sixth grade. So he did his Gandhi move. And he's like, I'm not moving. I'm not going. And it was amazing to me how many parents were saying to me after that, gee, you're so, I'm so proud of your kid. Or you must be so proud of your kid. And then the other parents are like, oh, I would have hit my kid. And, you know, uh, that was embarrassing. You know, that he wasn't, he wasn't paying, you know, blah, blah. Uh, the whole gamut of views of how people interpreted that situation. And I thought to myself, Sharon, that had nothing to do with me. This was him exercising his rights. He didn't want to go. He was doing it within his power. He's a child. He could have kicked and screamed. He could have done lots of things. He just actually just sat down and refused to move. <laughs> and, you know, nobody's going to put their Which hands on a child. Not bad. But that's right. That's right. None of that had anything to do with me. Like that was his own choice. That was his own response. So to sit here and say, I'm proud of him, or he's just like you, or he's whatever. It was really strange to me that they didn't see him as his own person. Well, you know, I know you. So I would, I would ask you, what did you learn about your child that day? I'm guessing you learned volumes and what, you know, when we're parenting mindfully, you need to really embrace the fact that your child has many different lessons than you do. Mm -hmm. And so when things, when the universe sends something into their life or a person or a situation and your child has to learn from it, 
There's a new parenting term out there called lawnmower parenting, where a parent will get in front of anything and mow them down so that their child doesn't have to experience it. Oh, I and love I am, that term. I'm very against it. I think that that is just so counterintuitive to allowing a human being to learn their lessons. I mean, you're ripping them off of a lesson that is perfectly timed in a perfect situation that if you're mindful and you're able to say that is, that really does suck. Yes, it does. And I can see why you're not happy about that. And I support the fact that you're not happy. Now the question is, what do we do about that? Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're stepping them through the cause and effect. You're t introducing them to how life really works and you're introducing them to themselves. And I think that that is, you know, um, I just think that that's a really lovely way of doing it. And I have a list of questions here that um, I'm trying to find in the moment. Here they are. Um, that I think you don't ask all these questions in every situation. But in your situation, you, I can imagine you doing this. But when you're mindful, when you're calm, the idea of asking questions is the idea of moving a child's brain from the emotional hemisphere to the logical hemisphere. Questions do that. And that takes a child from being completely flooded with emotions to actually being able to think. So your first question I like, and I think is great for almost any situation, is what do you think I'm going to say now? Yeah. <laughs> because you want your child to think, To this is how you move from the emotional to the logical. <laughs> and I see she's writing it down. There I she know. goes. Like I, I, I take more notes during these shows than probably anybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you really do want to say, what do you think I'm going to say now? Now that has a two pronged approach. Number one, you get to have time to deep breathe. We've talked about deep breathing as being part of mindful. That'll center you. It also makes the child go, wait a minute. She's asking me a question. I have to answer it. So they have to dive into their logical mind to think, what would mom say? The benefit of that is that they get to see if I do this, then that's what happens. So you begin taking them through the process and you'll get really, really good at asking these questions. Another question would be something, what were you trying to do? Or my, uh, another favorite is, what did you think would happen? Yeah, so that's a big one. I love that yeah, one. We, we tend to want to rush in and give them all the answers. But we are literally, when we do that, cutting them off from themselves and cutting them off, ripping them off from a situation that's been perfectly designed to teach them this lesson. So then the next question would be, well, what did you learn from that? Would you learn about yourself? Would you learn about me? Would you learn about, this, uh, about the situation? Right. What did you learn? And now you want to start coming into, this is where you're able to really show your authority. Being mindful, people really believe, does not show that I am firm and I have the authority. So you want to ask questions, well, what will you be doing differently so that never happens again? Now you're, what you're doing is starting to have a dialogue about the rules and the regulations and the boundary system that you have in your family. Right. And now you pull it back in and say, well, what happens if you do do that again? And the final one would be, what other things do you want to talk about so we can solve this? What will keep you safe? What will keep you out of trouble? What ideas do you have? 
because we want them to be empowered. We want them to think for, the, for themselves. We don't want to be the lawnmower parent. Well, and so that's, it's like, you know, you go back to biblical speaking, you know, in the Bible, they had that story where, you know, like, do you want to give them the fish or teach them to fish? Exactly. Do you want to think for them or do you want to teach them to think? They're not really yours. I mean, they are your children, but they are independent human beings that have things they need to learn. The question is, how do you learn best? Do you learn if a professor in college would scream at you? Do you learn from your boss screaming at you? Do you learn from your partner, your husband? Like the insulting. Like I want to just jump in with that one too, because, you know, there were times that like, um, like especially during the divorce process that that maybe wasn't yelling, you know, because when you're separated and you've got a restraining order, it's hard to yell at that person. Um, But you can have the mean things, you know, and I think back to, I went to Northwestern Sharon for my undergraduate and graduate, and I went on a full scholarship, so I'm far from dumb, but my, I took a physics class and the guy said, if I gave this exam to a bunch of cows in Wisconsin, they would have done better. And I never forgot that because, you know, it's like, you know, it's funny, uh, ha but like, you know, when you're it's not funny years old and you studied all night for this exam and you flunked it like now I taught at USC now I recognize it is as much my responsibility as my students responsibility if my whole class flunks then that's a reflection on me but as a 19 18 19 year old I didn't know that I have still like 30 years later it's stuck with me about or 20 years later that that test that a bunch of cows were smarter than me. So I see parents sometimes making these smart remarks to their kids, like one in basketball the other night, the dad said, God, if you ran any slower, you would go backwards. And I could tell the kid was trying. And it's like, you know, we see on TV, all these snappy, quippy, funny things that either kids say to parents or parents say to kids, but then I see it modeled with the parents in the car, in the stands, at the soccer field. And I think sometimes those things are even more hurtful and they stick with you longer because that physics teacher never yelled at me. He just told me I was dumb as a bunch of cows. So what lasted longer? Well, I think that that's, that's parenting on autopilot. That's bringing your childhood wounds into the way that you parent. That person obviously had been told something similar to that whenever he was growing up. And so he believed that that was the way to motivate a human being. He bypassed. I have done this in class with a lot of parents where I said, you know, um, can you remember what it was like the first time your parents said that to you? And they said, yes. And I said, was it a happy experience or a not happy experience? not happy. I said, is that something, do you love your child? Yes. Do you want to pass that on to your child? No. Says, what are you doing? Right. Wouldn't you want to take a breath right then and there? Wouldn't you want your awareness to be on what you say to that child? Because what you say is being, it's like a brick. It's put in the foundation of that human being. And then that human being has no choice because they're a child to use immature thinking. And immature thinking is skewed. It, isn't, it doesn't have the big picture, but they build an, on that for a lifetime and they make decisions about themselves and what they're capable of for a lifetime. So you made a decision, am I really, I'm dumber than cows? Right. 
And that will go with you for a long time until you go back in meditation, face that little girl who's 18 and said, you're not dumber than cows. Let it go. (laughs) You know, let's move on. Right. And so we're doing that with our kids. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, you know, when my kids, you know, do poorly on something, you know, I, that does come into my head that, you know, and it to watch your mouth, watch your, you watch your language, watch your tone, because that doesn't, that doesn't help anybody. No. And most of the time in society these days, and especially in parenting, um, a lot of people are really of the mind. I just need to let it go. Um, affirmations are kind of like that. I love affirmations, but there are other things that are motivating the wound that you're trying to change through affirmation. So if you don't get to the point of origin with what the wound really is, the affirmation is just going to spin around. So we need to start looking at what are these difficult feelings that we have and how do we address them? There was a great thing on Facebook a long time ago called the train analogy. Somebody wrote it and I've been using it. Uh, I forget who to give credit to, but you have my applause. It said, difficult feelings are tunnels and we are the trains traveling through them. All of us have to move through feelings so we can get through, get back to common peace at the end of the tunnel. And I thought that was brilliant for children because a four-year-old, all you have to do is show them a toy train going through a tunnel But with an 18-year-old, you're giving them the imagery of going through a tunnel. What am I going to find on the other side? I'm going to help to find how do I resolve these feelings? And that's the job. As parents, we don't ever show, well, I can't say ever. Most parents do not show their children how they process their feelings. Right. And we assume and expect our children to process their feelings without any help from us. Well, and you can't the do thing, that. like with the train analogy, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but that's okay. You go through the tunnel, you come out the other side. Like that's exactly. the one thing that I found, especially with my, my teen and preteen with heartache, it's not always going to yeah. hurt. You know what I mean? Like right. heart hurts right now. She didn't, you know, my one asked, my little guy asked like four girls to the dance. Oh, they all said no. Then he went to the dance by himself and asked three more girls and they all said no. That's tough. You know, it's that tough. is tough. You know, and I and he's yeah. like, Mom, I'm so sad, or Mom, I'm so mad, Mom, I'm blah, blah, blah. and I'm like, I know you are, and and you know, of course you are. And I said, but you know what, this isn't going to last forever, so just go ahead and feel them because the more you feel them, the the faster you can let them go. Like you know, I didn't know how to tell him not to hang on to it, but now I got the train in the tunnel. Once you go through and feel the feelings, you come out the other side, process them. There's the light, literally at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. But you gave your son the gift of, look, when you feel this way, feel this way. And when you're done, you're done. Instead of when you feel this way, swallow your feelings and move on. Soldier on. Don't cry. Be a brick. Be a rock. Don't cry. It's like, no, don't. Feel them. Because once you feel them, you can process through them and they are over. And you can make a new decision about what it is I need to do. Right. And that's being mindful. So my goal here is to take mindful from Webster's um, definition and expand it so that it has a big, pers- uh, you know, big picture perspective to it. Because you have to look at your five-year-old and say, 
What is it that you need to learn right here, right now, so you'll be better tomorrow? In punishing you for this is not going to teach you what you need to learn. Punishing will not teach you how to enter a conversation respectfully and interrupt. If I keep turning around and say, don't interrupt me, I'm not telling you what to do instead. Right. And that is the key. The key is what you can say what you need to say to stop me, to guide me, but what am I supposed to do instead? Right. And we forget to tell kids that. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing too is, is I think a lot of parents and, you know, maybe it's the way they were raised. I was raised in a German, Polish, Ukrainian household, which wouldn't make it captain friendly, um, you know, with, with having your emotions all over. And I will say to my kids, and I, I had to do this because my mom was dying of breast cancer and I had to put our two dogs down and then my dad moved in with us. So we had a lot of transition and, um, and I got divorced in all the middle of that, by the way. So a lot of things that made mom cry. And so yeah. I got in the habit of in the car, they would go like, mom, what's wrong? And I'd say, you know, I miss grandma. And I know, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tearing up because I miss grandma. It's not anything you guys did. And it's not anything you need to fix. I just miss her right now. And the therapist that I was working with um, helped me with some of that languaging. But when you have especially extreme things going on, like any one of those things, um, you know, like when I put the dogs down, I cried and the kids were like, you know, why are you crying? And I'm like, well, I'm going to miss Bailey. And he used to eat bees and make us laugh. And, you know, and then I said, I'm so happy that I can be with him when he crosses over. And they're like, well, you know, why don't you just leave him at the vet? You know, these are the questions kids ask. And I think yes, when you put your answers and include your feelings, it helps so much because they then they understand they're not at fault. They didn't do anything wrong because that was maybe it's all kids. But if I cry, their go to is what did I do wrong? And if I well, yeah, tearing up over something, you know, like a movie or something, and I'll say, oh, well, this made me think of the time grandma and I just missed her and my eyes teared up. Like that's, you know, and especially boys, you know, they're not the yes. best. So they look at my face and say, mom's crying. And I, one time, Sharon, you'll love this. I actually asked my two boys, they were about like, I don't know, eight and 10 or 10 and 12, somewhere around there, you know, before high school, I was really angry. And I said, can you look at my face and tell me what you think I'm feeling? They were like, um, sad, I'm mad, I, I don't know. And I realized at that point that maybe I'm a good poker face because my Polish German background, or maybe they're kids and they can't read it. Like, but to both of my kids, sad and mad look the same. That's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. And, and, and so then it becomes our job as parents to look at it and say, what does my face say? Do that for a couple of months. And what you're doing is you're giving your children the social clues of being able to read other human beings. But that also brings up the point of, you know, our face may not tell. Like, I try really hard not to upset my kids with my own tears. Because yeah. when you have sons, and I think you've experienced this as well, it's kind of like, I'll do anything to protect you. I love you. And, yes. you know, just don't, don't upset my mother. Um, but what they, what most people don't recognize is there's an energy that follows your feelings. 
So your energy is being, it's, it, it's sending out its own signals that I'm upset. And so that's what your kids are, are trying to read. They feel it because children will always feel you before they'll see you. They can feel your feelings because you're connected to them. Sure. They grew up inside. I mean, they were born in, from inside of you. Um, well, for crying out, your dogs can. You know, I've had dogs for 15 years. When I come exactly. to work and I've had like, like if I'm on the freeway and I get off the freeway and I'm frustrated from the freeway, when I walk in, my dogs will do this thing with their eyebrows. They go, and they don't, and, you know, they don't run around. Like I've literally just walked in the door. How did you know I was frustrated from the freeway? Because normally if I come in and I walk in and they're like, bip, 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 and I'm like, hi guys, boop, boop, boop. You know, they're, you know, so if a dog can figure it out, make no mistake, so can your kid. Absolutely. And so it is our job to instruct them and guide them and show them, but not prevent them from experiencing things that will teach them that. So, you know, it, it, it is, it's important to ask those questions. What does my face look like? Am I serious right now or am I kidding around? And then they get the idea, oh, she's serious. So, you know, we don't get to make a decision when they have or when they should have mastered um, that knowledge. It's a long process. How many adults do you know that can't read social clues? Well, right. I mean, my dad, my brother, all of my NASA friends, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's certain characteristics, um, you know, in, in kids or boys or, you know, like my one son is more comfortable on the computer. So we will actually text. Sometimes we have a disagreement and he doesn't like confrontation. I don't like confrontation. So I go in my room, he goes in his room and then the text starts. Mom, you didn't understand. This is what I meant when I said this. And I'm like, you're right. I didn't. I'm sorry. I got mad. This is what I was thinking happened. And he goes, no, mom, I wouldn't do that. You know, you can look at these texts and go, you know, there's ways to repair things. You know, if you're kind of nerdy introverts, use a text. If you're an extrovert, my little one, he likes face to face, right up in my face, want to tell me. And I have a hard time even constructing a sentence when someone's right in my face talking to me about emotions. So I think it's right. like this pea soup of, of what can you do and then what can your kids do? What works best for you guys? It's about creating a safe space for each individual. With your son, it's really great to do texting. I think we finally found a, a great use for texting. Is that for some people, it's safer to just text how I felt and yes. do that. Um, you know, if for other people, and I have a son who is very emotional, wants to get right in my face. And so I finally realized, okay, that's a little much for me. Why don't you sit beside me? And now we're both looking straight on and I can hold your hand so you feel connected, but we can both say what we need to say without you, like you're, you're sending it to me it's and you're attacking intense. me. Yeah. It's too intense. Well, so, and that's you know, why, like even the, the PlayStation or the Xbox or the, the, the little handheld, the Nintendo thing he plays with, mm -hmm. um, we have better conversations with both of my kids when they're playing a video game. Right. There is a part of them that is off doing something else. They feel safe and they can just talk. So, you know, these are things that's like, okay, well, we don't like technology, but is there a mindful way we can use technology to really help us? Um, we are all accepting of the fact that you take five deep breaths, have a seat, cross your legs, get centered. Now let's talk about it. But from that point on of let's talk about it and how do I 
remind you what the rules are and how do I give a consequence that will teach you and give you the life skills you need, that we don't do mindfully. And that's where we need to really be mindful. Um, because there are things like, um, you know, when a child doesn't feel heard, when he feels that you're not listening to him, he's going to hang on to those feelings. But then he translates those feelings into a way that isn't accurate, but he bases everything on it. Things like, you know, he'll be resentful after you've said no, and his overriding thought is, this is unfair. Then when you use immature reasoning and you keep putting yourself in a situation where you find that you think your parent's being unfair, you, the message that's being sent is, I can't trust adults. They're always unfair. Right. Now, that decision travels and has legs throughout their lifetime. And they would have to really work hard to figure out, I can't trust adults. That's why I've made those decisions. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we want to do is say, I see that you don't think this is fair. Tell me what you think would be fair. Right. Okay? Doesn't or, mean or I'm going to use your own. Like, I'm going to use your own, my notes here. I'm going to say, why do you think I'm going to say no? Yeah. I mean, that would be kind of a fun one to, you know, like if they say, mom, I want to do whatever and I don't want them to do it. Why do you think I will say no? Okay. But still you want to give them the opportunity to arrive at the no. So there's compliance there. So okay. if you add, why am I going to say no? They're going to immediately start to have a power struggle with you because they, they disagree that you should say no. Okay. But if you say, what am I going to say now? then they have to think, you're going to say no. Why am I going to say no? Oh, so they have to do the why reasoning. Do you think? I missed the reason. They have to do the thinking. Got it. That's why I called it pulling it through the brain. Yeah. I'm not going to give you the answer. I want you to really think about this yourself because not only do I want you to know I'm going to say no, but I want you to know why. Right. And then I would basically with my kids look at them and say, you agree with why I'm going to say no, no, no right? You agree with why I'm going to say no, right? And they go, yeah. And it's over. Yeah, because there's sometimes when I've said no and the kids, I've, I have this rule with them that, you know, I don't know everything and I'm not perfect. So if I say something and you can come back with a really clear argument as to why I should change my mind, just come to me and, and do it in a respectful manner. And there have been times where my kids have come back to me and said, mom, you know, I think you should reconsider this. And, you know, here are the three reasons. And you know what? They're good reasons because there's sometimes I'm Absolutely. tired and no is just easy. Exactly. And so being mindful is opening up the dialogue. Now, the other thing I want to be really clear about here is that I've been trained very clearly to bring this down to a kindergarten level to the basics, because when you're emotional in any way, shape, or form, being um, having all kinds of complicated concepts to use, you're gonna fail. But if I bring it down to really basic, this is communication, This and, I, and you're the expert with your child, so you're gonna know where to go, I'm just giving you a clue, then you have success. And that's what proactive parenting is all about, is tips and clues and sample conversations and books and eBooks that will help you get through this because we know we need to be mindful. We're just not sure what to say in order to be mindful. Right. The languaging, you've helped me so much with, you know, just the wording and how to say these things. So Sharon, tell us a little bit about where people can find these books and eBooks and information. Um, you can find me at proactiveparenting.net and everything is there. You can also find me on Facebook at Pro 
active parenting tips. And so I'm there and I'm also on Instagram, but I'm working on that Instagram thing. <laughs> but well, thank you so much. Find it. Yeah, thank you so much for being our guest today. And what other materials do you have? What other source materials do you have? Oh my gosh. Well, we have our book, Stop Reacting and Start Responding, um, 108 Ways to Transform Behavior into Learning Moments. So you take the daily things about life and you change the languaging and you change the concept and you have a learning moment. And that's really what proactive parenting is all about. That's so thank wonderful. you so much for having me on today. Oh my gosh, I have so much fun. Look at my whole page of notes. I'm so excited to try these out. And um, boy, if you haven't tried the try again, whenever your kids sass this to you and you don't like it, if you just say try again and they'll say it in a way that that improves, it's, it's just like a magic tool. We're going to have you back again, Sharon. This has been so much fun. Proactiveparenting.net. We'll catch you again next week. Hey everybody, this is Sandra Beck and I've got such a treat today. I'm visiting today with Paula Mounier and she is the author of Borrowing and of Bones. She's got some other books. She's got a new book coming out. But what we're talking about today is what happens when you turn at one of these benchmarks, 40, 50, 60 years old, and you decide you want to write a book. Maybe you want to write your story, your life story. Maybe you have an idea. And I get a lot of requests, Paula, for particularly women over 60 these days. And I think 60 is the new 40 because what I saw like 15 years ago with these people turning 40 and second career, second career. Well, now I'm seeing third career at 60. And that's fabulous because we're living longer. And, you know, if we take better care of ourselves, we're still productive into our much, much later years. But I kind of think 60 is the new 40. And when did you start writing? Like, I know you were always a writer because you were a journalist first, but when did you get that book bug? Well, I started writing a long time ago, but I really always wanted to be a mystery writer. Huh. I wanted to be a mystery writer, but that was kind of like, it was kind of an ambition that I never simply got around to, right? I was in publishing. I was help, I was the midwife as the editor, helping other people get published. I was writing nonfiction, but I wasn't writing my own mysteries. And I joined Mystery Writers of America. And I you know I had written half of mystery <laughs> several times and stuck in drawers, but I never really got around to doing it. And when it wasn't until I turned 60 oh. that I finally thought, okay, you know, I can do this. And my first mystery was published when I was 62. See, I love that because for many of us that are 40 or for me, I just turned 50. I'm getting to the point where my kids are 14 and 17 and I'm going, okay, what's next? You know, 20 years on radio, 20 years in, you know, kind of television production, media, digital production. Do I want to just do this like, would this be my life for the rest of my life? Now, I'd be very happy if it was, but there's a part of me that wants more. Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about this this morning because I'm writing book four in my mystery series and I'm on act three, which, of course, is the end, beginning, middle, end. It's, it's the last act. And, and in, a, in a movie, in a play, in a book, act three is when all the big stuff happens, right? It's the climax. It's all these great things come together in act three. And I thought, you know, actually in real life is the same way, mm -hmm. you know, because you have 
the time. And for me, I had not just the time um, because I wasn't child caring anymore and I didn't have anyone in the house. And there was no one to take care of. And even though that was my raison d'etre for 30 years, first, yeah, I had my first child at 21 and it wasn't until my 50s that you know, the last one left home and I had my empty nest crisis, right? Um, it wasn't until then that I realized once I got used to the idea, I thought, oh, I have not only the physical energy yeah. to devote to writing fiction, but I also have the mental and emotional and psychic space in my head to do that kind of work. And so it was a revelation to me that as upset as I was, when my youngest went off and I was alone for the first time in my life, I was living alone for the first time in my life because I had gone right from parents to dorm to roommates to husband to kids. Wow. I had never lived alone in my life. And so here I was at 55 living alone and it took uh, yoga to get me through that. But it also, it also became this impetus and this catalyst because I also, I left publishing, I left corporate publishing. Mm -hmm. I started working as an agent. I was running my own business for my, for the first time in my life and loving it. And it was just sort of a natural um, expansion of that, that, that having all that time to myself, even though I was really busy, it was my time to live my way. Gotcha. And that's what made the difference. Well, and you know, that's, you know, when we talk about like living my life, my way, some of us didn't have their first kid till they were 35 and 37. So, you know, I lived alone and I had a whole full life, you know, a whole, I had a full marriage. <laughs> I had a whole full life. I had a, you know, traveled the world. I did all sorts of amazing things. And then I decided, okay, now I'm ready to be a mom because I had problems settling down. So when I was ready to be a mom, but now that means that my empty nest is hitting and it's like a reboot. Yes. Because what I'm finding is the things that I used to do in my 20s, which was like get up and work out and, you know, draw and paint and take pictures and, and write and journal and do all these things, they're creeping back in my life at 50. So when you look at having your kids later in life, it's really act one, two and three like a book. Absolutely. I mean, I had my first child at 21, but I had my last one at 36. So I just had children my entire adult life. Your entire and, adult life. Yes. And so I think when you were saying earlier that this used to happen at 40, that's because people had children so much younger right. and they were grown and gone by 40. Now they're not grown and gone until you're 50, 55, 60. And so that's why, thank God, we're all healthier and living longer. So we still have this third act that we can live out our dreams. We can live out our dreams in our third act. Absolutely. And I love what you said about like psychic space. And, you know, because one of the things that I struggle with, and I think a lot of women do, especially as you're at the later childhood years, you know, I still have a full-time job with my company and the kids don't need me every minute of the day, but there's still like a partition of that. That's, mm -hmm. and then now at my age, you take on elder care. So mm -hmm. You know, we've kind of, you know, and my dad, I love him, but he's, he's like a 20 year old kid in my house. Sometime, you know, you still got to keep track of them and Absolutely. everything's okay, but they don't need your day to day. But what I'm finding is the, the emotional space or the psychic space or that, that creative space is so stressed 
right now because you're you've got kids you've got grandpa you've got work and so when i at the end of all of my obligation when you try to be creative i think that's really hard and i think that's one of the things that probably can't happen until something moves away Yes, I mean, I do think there's something to that. I mean, other people managed to do it, but I was not one of them. You know, I could write nonfiction, but fiction, you know, if, if nonfiction, if writing is thinking on paper, then I like to think of fiction as dreaming on paper. And I didn't have the wherewithal to dream on paper with when my mind was on so many different things at once, you know? Um, and so I think that's true for a lot of people. And it was certainly true for me. Yoga sort of got me started. Because when, when I realized that, you know, I was going to spend my first winter alone, I went to my yoga teacher training after work three nights a week and every weekend. And then I was alone on my mat because yoga, you're in a class, but you're alone on your mat. Right. Ultimately. And I thought, oh, it taught me to be alone in the world. And I needed to be alone in the world. I knew, needed to know how to do that. I mean, like you said, many women already know how to do that. They did that. <laughs> No, but I did never had never done that. Sure. So it was good for me. And it was good for me to be alone on the mat. And I think that kind of solitude, especially for writing, is critical. You need that kind of solitude. You which do. Is why, you know, this is why we get our best ideas driving alone in the car or taking a shower oh. or in the bathtub or washing the dishes. Agatha Christie used to say the best time to plot a novel was while you're washing the dishes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that's funny when you say these things, I think of like, I was alone in my 20s, got married in my 30s and had kids, got divorced, was alone then for the last 17 years, you know, as a single mom. I wonder if my third act will have to be, you know, being in a relationship with someone consistently. Like, you know, I don't know what that that will will do for me, but I love what you said about like dreaming on paper versus what did you say? Dreaming on paper versus thinking on paper. Thinking on paper. Because yeah, a lot of my job, you know, that with with radio and with the the digital production, I'm writing copy all the time. Like I'm writing all the time. I'm just not writing anything that's dreaming. And I, you know, because you have to be creative. But do you think that there's a, like, you know how your muscles fatigue after you work out and if you walk too much, your legs are tired. Do you think that there's a part of you that creatively fatigues by the end of the day? Is that like a muscle? Like, cause what is creativity? Well, that's a good question, you know, and I think it's different for different people, but I do know that you have a well and you have to prime the pump because the well can run dry. It runs dry when we're stressed out. It runs dry when we're tired. It runs dry when we've used it too much, right? Um, I know I'm writing 2,500 words a day now as I barrel towards the end of book four. And, you know, by the end of the day, I can't answer the simplest question or make the simplest decision because I have, I've spent that. That yep. creative impulse is spent, right? And so I do think that if you want to do something creative, anything else you do, even if it's like writing copy or or guarding whatever else, you can you can spend that creative impulse and then it's gone. And so it's hard to recreate it and reignite it once you've spent it. So you have to be careful that you save that creative impulse for what you really, really need it for. 
Well, and I love that you say that because so many of us as moms or grandma use those creative impulses for things for other people. And then we turn around when it's time for us to write our own stuff. We're like, where did that go? What <laughs> happened? And now we know, you know, what happened that there is, um, you know, that there is a limit to, you know, where it's not an unlimited resource. Right. No, no, it's not. And you do have to prime that pump and, you know, your, your brain, your body, your emotions will all tell you when you've run dry, you know? Yeah. Now, let me ask you, I, you know, in my, when I do my kind of leadership and development work aspect of my company, I get a lot of, of 40, 50, 60s that come in, they want to uh, start a podcast, they want to have a YouTube channel, they want to have, you know, some creative outlet. And one of the things that they always say to me is like, I'm new, I'm a blank slate, I'm completely open, I'm trainable. And I'm like, yes, you are. But you're not starting from scratch. Like, you know, we come as 40, 50, 60 year olds, we come with experiences, we come with skill sets. And like, for me, the hardest thing in transitioning from dreaming, or what did you call it? Thinking on paper to dreaming on paper is I have 25 years of straight up hard copy, like no fluff, no emotion, no. So when you come from corporate America, which is where a lot of writers, I believe, come from, they had some sort of corporate career. Now they're like, okay, I'm ready to, you know, write and switch. What I found is it's not easy to switch those voices in your head and those old rules of keep the emotion out and, you know, brevity and keep it clear and, you know, keep it simple, stupid, if you write for the Marine Corps. (laughs) Well, absolutely. And even I had the same problem because I wrote nonfiction for years and I helped other nonfiction writers, you know, write better nonfiction. And so I found that there are some things you have to learn and some things you have to unlearn, right? Yep. To, to write, to go from writing nonfiction to fiction, even if whether you're writing law briefs, I have a lot of clients who are lawyers, you know, writing their first novels or whether you wrote um, whatever it is you, you happen to write. Some people it's, it's um, reports, some people it's you know, all kinds of articles, depends, journalists, whatever. Right. Blogs, like you name it. You know, there's tons of things, training manuals. I wrote training manuals for tech for years and I still find myself going like, oh, your word count is, that paragraph's too long. Right. Oh, yes, exactly. And so there are a lot of things that you you have to notice about your writing, right? And I actually wrote a a blog post, a free blog post about this for careerauthors.com about, you know, what I call your nonfiction is showing, right? So it means that you, you, you can tell, I can almost always tell, oh, here's a nonfiction writer or a screenwriter who's now writing their first novel because they make certain kinds of mistakes. One is as a journalist, or if you're writing a report, you're, you're, you don't put yourself in it, right? It's, right? You've distanced yourself. And so to write a novel, you have to be in it. You know, you, you inhabit every character. You, it's like method acting right? So that it really comes across as authentic. And so you have to do that. You also, you also have to lose all the jargon that you, that you wrote with, you know, whether, whatever your industry was, there was jargon associated with it. And you have to sort of purge that. And you also have to throw in everything but the kitchen sink and fiction. You can always take it out later. But I think like you were saying, we edit in our heads, right? And we edit to whatever standard we were writing to for whatever kind of medium we were writing for right fiction is is looser you have to loosen up a little bit 
I think most people who go from writing nonfiction to fiction, they don't, they're not these writers who turn in 200,000 word drafts and have to, you know, cut it in half. They're the writers who come up with 50,000 words and they're, oops, like my first novel, oops, way too short. I have to find a way to, not to even make more happen, but just to weave in more of the elements that we keep out when we're writing nonfiction. Right, because, you know, I remember my journalism professors and every everything I've ever written for business is if in doubt, leave it out. Like, you know, if you're if exactly. you're not sure if it should be in there, leave it out, clean and, you know, write, write clean, lean and mean, you know, all these things. And, and, you know, when you come to writing something that has all these emotions in it, that was the hardest for me because I feel them, but it felt like, Ooh, like I can't write that down. Like there's no emotion in a, you know, in a tech manual, there's no emotion in, you know, new, well, I will say in our generation, yours and mine, there was no emotion component in journalism. I think that's changed right. today. Now, most of it's all opinion pieces anyway. Yeah. Um, but when you've been drilled, like I did at Northwestern, I went to the Medill School of Journalism, like we, that was beaten out of us, man. There was no, you know, nothing pejorative, nothing, you know, that could be, per, you know, right. anyway, misconstrued and word choice was huge. Exactly. Well, you weren't the story. And it was drilled into us that we were not the story, right? right. And so now, you, like you say, that's changed a lot. <laughs> but, <laughs> but at the time, you, you were not the story. Right. And so now, in some way, you are the story. You're the, you're the writer. You're the director. You're the cast. <laughs> you're everybody. You're the costumer, yeah. costume designer. You're the set designer. So to write fiction, you have to play all these roles and really throw yourself into them wholeheartedly and not hold back. And that's what I had to learn to do, not to hold back. Well, and I think that's so important that we talk about this because when we look at like the 40, 50, 60 something second or third career writers, even as women, even as mothers, we hold back ours. It's for our children. It's for our husband. It's for our father or our mother or our sister or our friend. Like it's not innate in women to put themselves in all these roles for any other reason than knowing what that person needs. Yes. I mean, I think all writers have trouble explaining to their family and their friends and their colleagues that they want to sit alone in a room by themselves for hours, making up stories about imaginary people doing imaginary things. And it's even harder for women to yeah. justify that time and that, um, psychic space. And yeah. so I think you have to first give yourself permission that you get to do this, you know, yeah. and you get to do it your way and that whatever it takes to prime that pump and get those words on the page to dream on paper, you give yourself permission to do that, whether it's golf, whether it's gardening, whether it's meditation, whatever it happens to be that gets you to that space. Yeah, I, I love that because one of the things that, you know, I'm an avid reader. I have five Kindles, I kid you not, and they're loaded, like, and they're loaded with certain things. Like I have, I don't want, I'm, I'm like the person whose literary food does not want to touch, you know, like your peas cannot touch your potatoes. So like my, my tech books are all on one Kindle and that's my tech Kindle. Then I have my Oasis, which is like, oh, it's got all my, you know, like your books are on there. My, you know, like the books that I want to escape and live another life. Well, then I have my radio books that people send me books all the time for radio. So those are all kind of kept in the radio. Now, sometimes 
Like you were, you started out on the radio Kindle and you moved to my private enjoyment Kindle. Like, I know I get a little nutty with this, but when you have a lot of books, it's like you wouldn't throw all your books in one room and just, you know, put them all willy nilly. So having them separated like that, and I have hundreds and hundreds of books and I love them all. Like if you're not, if I don't love it, you get off my Kindle, you get off my shelves, you get, you know, given away to, to the, um, I give all my hard copy or my books that come to, for radio, go to the VA in Los Angeles reading room. So all of, you know, and, and then if I really love a book, like, like your books, I actually gave out as gifts. Um, but if I really love a book, I will buy the hard copy and I will buy the electronic because sometimes I want to read that book when I'm traveling and it's in my library at home. So I'm a little weird with all this stuff, but one of the things that, that reading other people's work does is I've always felt sad, Paula, that we're only given one life to live. You know what I mean? Like, like I would like to be like, you know, I'm single. So when I meet someone, I kind of go, well, what would my life be like if I'm with this person? You know, and a lot of people who've been married a long time don't have that opportunity. And I don't think young people do that that much. But when you're 50 and single, you do that a lot going, he likes to do camping. Do I want to spend my weekends camping? Or this guy really likes to, like the one guy that I'm dating now, he likes to read. He likes to kayak. He likes to swim. He likes to walk on the beach. And I'm like, check, 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 check. Those are all things I love to do too. So I look for that in a, in a partner. But when I pick up a book, like I can be Mercy Carr in your book for whatever 300 pages and I can try on these lives like because I really do I get really involved in the books like the whole world goes away and sometimes the kids will come in and go mom it's 5 30 in the morning and I'm covered myself up with a blanket and I'm kind of like you know like just barely holding the pages but I can't not leave the book and so it's amazing to me that as readers, we can easily hop into somebody's skin, but not as writers. Yes, well, writing is sort of like that on steroids. You know, <laughs> um, I was explaining to my mother who, who lives with us and uh, she's 86 and she does puzzles, you know, these 300 piece puzzles. And she said, well, what's it like? And I said, well, you know, writing act three, writing a mystery is kind of like creating a puzzle but there's no picture, <laughs> you, know? Right. you don't have a picture to go by, you're making it up. Um, and so I think that when you're, when you're writing, it's like reading, only it's a more intense experience, right? Because you literally become these people. Just yeah. you, you become them when you're reading, but when you're writing, it, it, it takes that to a whole new level. And the more you're able to do that, of course, the more, hopefully, the more, the reader will relate to your characters because you've inhabited those characters so well that they can inhabit them too. So do you cry when you write? Do you laugh when you write? Like I'm ridiculous and I have to have my own office because when I'm creating, like I created these, these videos for a company and the product, I won't say it, but the product is really boring. It's (laughs) one color there's nothing remarkable about it and it's used in the bathroom for old people like 
where do you go with this when you're creating a whole like advertising marketing campaign in this video? So I found this music that reminded me of Austin Powers. And then I'm like, since the product was like bland beige, I'm like, I put it against all this like Austin Powers background and I'm laughing and I'm having the greatest time like in my own little creative world. And then when I got to the end, I didn't have an ending. And then I started to cry because I'm like, I built it up so much so there was like where's the climax where's the pinnacle in this little you know five minute video and i'm like i can't think of it so i cried and went to bed and eventually you know two days later i came up with something and it was fine but i didn't realize how much emotion is released in creativity so what happens to you when you're creating these scenes well if i can't make myself cry I don't think I can make anybody else cry. And of course, making laugh is even harder. It's harder to make somebody laugh because laugh, you know, humor is more subjective. But this book actually before is funnier. The other books have not necessarily been funny. Um, and so this book is funnier. I don't know why it's funnier, <laughs> but maybe it's because the pandemic is over, sort of. <laughs> I don't know. I'm feeling more optimistic. I don't know. But it is funnier. And I, I have made myself laugh. My husband always says to me, are you talking to me? because I'm always <laughs> talking my characters out loud, right? I'm, oh, that's funny. And, and he'll be like, you're not talking to me, right? <laughs> no, no, sorry, honey, I am not talking to you. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. That's so funny. Well, do you think, and, and I'm going to say this because I was married to a professional comedian and for many years in my twenties, I wrote comedy. Like I wrote, I wrote jokes for comedians. I wrote, I punched up scripts for television. You know, when I worked, worked in the industry, um, what I found was funny can only come when real funny, not, not forced funny, but real natural organic funny comes from a confidence and a freedom. So like my first radio shows, if you go back 15 years and look them up in the archives, they're so boring and they're so awful. And I, I just, I can't even believe they're me. They don't even sound like me. But as I got, you know, a thousand shows under my belt, 1500 shows, all of a sudden I'm more relaxed. I'm more confident and I'm more allowing my feelings, my insights, my humor to show. And my humor is never hurtful towards anyone. So I don't have to worry about being funny on the air, but I'm funnier now than I've ever been because I'm free. So do you think maybe in book four, there's some freedom, you know, you've got one, two, and three under your belt. They're bestsellers. Everybody loves them. Can you relax a little bit and make, maybe have a little more light in it? I don't know. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that may very well be true. Everybody said that book three was made them cry. Yes. And so I was like, oh, really? It made you cry. And so it was a very emotional book. Apparently, unbeknownst to me, the most emotional book of the series so far. And then writing book four, I was off to a really good start. And then my dad got sick and died unexpectedly. And this was in February. Right. And that sort of threw me for a loop. And I couldn't write. I just couldn't, I, I yeah. couldn't write. And then I finally, but I had a deadline <laughs> and I, you know, and um, my editor's like, you know, they don't want to move the book out another season. So you have to, can you, can you find a way to get back to writing? And I realized that the only way I could do it was to write my dad into the book. Nice. So now there's a character who's inspired by my dad. And, you know, that has really helped me get back to the writing. And I think because my dad was really funny, his hands were sort of very dry, 
you know, Colonel kind of humor. (laughs) And I think that that's helped me write the book and it's helped animate the book. I love that. I love that because I love the kind of the transmuting of grief into something creative. And, um, and I think, you know, as especially as we talk 40, 50, 60, there are women who have divorces, maybe the death of a spouse, death of a child. I will tell you one of the best things I did when my mom passed away, you know, I had cared for her for five years and then she passed away and there was such a void in my life. How possibly could there be a void with two kids and my dad in the house? But there was, there was just an emptiness and an ache. And I poured it into these articles that I wrote for inspire me today. And my mom was in every one of those things. And I felt like she was still with me and I still feel that she's still with me. Um, Like she's sitting here next to me right now, you know, in spirit going, Oh, you're not going to tell that story again, are you? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I have this rich life in my head, but I think writing is really helpful and it doesn't have to be just journaling. You know, when my mom died and I was really grieving and I was, I, you know, I had gone through a divorce at the same time. Like it was just a, we had a mess in Maple Leaf Garden and my therapist kept saying journal, journal, journal. And I would journal and I, then I would like rip in half, throw one half in the Walmart garbage can and one half in the Target so no one could put the two back together because I had written all these awful things about how, you know, angry, like when you write your real feelings, they're ugly, you know, they're like, <laughs> yeah, ugly crying, ugly. So I would either burn them or throw them in trash cans all around Los Angeles in parts. <laughs> so you couldn't put them back together. Um but it didn't, it stopped working for me to write, I'm so sad. I miss you, mom. I'm, I'm angry about this. Like that just stopped working for me. And then what worked for me was transmuting that grief into these, you know, hundred or so articles I wrote for inspire me today. And they, they ran a course, but my mom was present in all of those in some way. And if you look at my radio show stuff, you'll see a little butterfly hidden somewhere in the design of the websites in the show that's my mom and that helped me get through the worst of the grief yes I mean I never had much luck journaling for that for that very reason I think it's so on the nose journaling and 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 I can't come to my emotional depths right the really hard stuff I can't come to it straight on I have to go sort of sidle up to it obliquely and so (laughs) You know, and, and I did write a lot about my dad when he was alive. I wrote a lot of essays um, and about my dad. He was, because he's a great character. He's a lovely man and a great character. But writing fiction allowed me to, it's not really him, but it's inspired by him. It's and, the spirit of him. Yep. Yes, exactly. So I could not have done it. I could not have read an essay, wrote it, because my children said, why don't you write another great essay for dad for the service? And I said, no, I can't. I just can't, but I can read one of the ones that I already wrote. So I did that. I read one of their favorite one about him. I read that at the service, but that didn't help me, you know, on the nose writing about him didn't help me creating a character inspired by him because it was a little, little, not on the nose, a little, you know, way of sort of transmuting it. That really did help me. Sure. I can see that because yeah, writing, trying to hit those feelings head on. I don't know how many people can do them. And then I don't know about you. Do you ever have a hard time identifying? Like if I'm working on an essay for a client or I'm ghostwriting a book or I'm doing something like that 
it's one step removed from me. And that makes it easier for me to deal with these difficult emotions. But if you come straight at me with, you know, like talking about grief, I will like go, uh, 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 and then my eyes will tear up and I'll start to cry. And that's the end of it. Absolutely. I dated this guy once and I guess it's what other people say is, is like dating a woman because he was always asking me how I felt. Oh, he always wanted to talk about his feelings. And I and I didn't want to talk about my feelings. <laughs> I just wanted to go to the movies. You know, I, I had no desire to talk about my feelings. And so he was always putting me on the spot. And I realized later that I don't really necessarily know how I feel till it's over. Right. And I could say, boy, I was really angry. You know, I was, you know, I always have sort of a delayed reaction to things. And I think a lot of women do because we're busy Absolutely. dealing with the emergency or the crisis or whatever is happening right in front of us. We don't allow ourselves to think about how we feel. We're too busy fixing. Right. And then later when it's over, we're like, oh yeah, boy, this, this is terrible. I'm going to cry now. Right. Well, and I, you know, I've, I've given a lot of thought to that thing because I'm, I'm, I thought I was just emotionally dead. Like I really did. And I thought, then I went through a stage where I'm like, I have no, I have no emotions. I'm like a three speed car. I'm either happy, sad, or mad. Like I have none of the nuances. And what I, what I discovered since then though, is when you hear about the flight fight or freeze in order to continue to function, I had to freeze. Like, think about it. If you are attending, you're helping somebody else, you're helping your kids, you're doing whatever, you have to freeze that part of you. And Mm -hmm. so I can't fly because I've got two kids. I can't fight because I'm not going to do that. So freezing was my way of managing everything. And I had to kind of like chip away at these emotions to free them because yeah, the person I'm dating now is very emotional and he'll say, Oh, you know, wasn't that this, didn't you feel this at the sunrise? And I'm like, I got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Big goose egg, but it's helping me to reconnect with that because I think as journalists, we're taught to freeze our emotions. You know, you can't go and cover a fatal shooting and be crying all over everybody. My first fatal shooting, I threw up on the cop. I'd never seen anybody, you know, with part of them blown away. So to see it, and it was a young girl, my same age, was really alarming. And he said, are you going to be okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. (laughs) All over his uniform. I just remember his boots covered like with my lunch. Um, But you know, there's so many places, corporate America is no place for emotions. So we've got journalism training, we've got corporate training, you know, so having these emotions. And I think as mothers, we always keep our emotions more or less to the side because so we can attend to the child's emotions. Absolutely. I, I, I think I think it's all very critical to the creative process to find a way to tap into those emotions, even if you're doing it sideways, right? right. <laughs> However you can do it, find it, find a way, because that will that that helps prime the well too. That helps prime the pump. Absolutely. Well, and that's why we talk about these things, Paula, because, you know, there's so many women that have stories in them. They want to share, they want to say something, but then they sit down and they're, they're like frozen. Yes. You know, I have a lot of clients who, who came to their first novels in their fifties, in their sixties, even in their seventies, people are ready to write when you're ready to write. And I think you, you reach a certain point in your life where you understand that, okay, this is act three. It's now or never. 
I'm going right. to sit down and I'm going to do this. And you give yourself permission to do it. And then, you know, you do it and you find the support you need, the resources you need, and they're all out there. You can do, you know, you can do it. Oh, so many people, sure. so many people are in the same position as you are. And I think they say that one of the reasons people aren't going back to work after the pandemic is because they realize that the only thing they really liked about their job was going to the office and hanging out with their colleagues. They yeah. liked the camaraderie. But when they were stuck at home doing the work at home, they realized they hated that work. Right. <laughs> so they don't want to go back. Right. You know? And so I think the pandemic sort of really made this even more apparent that, okay, here's what I want to do. I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to live my act three to its fullest. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of having, you know, having life is, is what are we going to do next? What are we going to create? What's going to fulfill us? And, you know, I love that you can try on those things in books, you know, like sometimes like, like even before I went into radio and this was many years ago, I kept watching Frasier and I'm like, Oh, do I really want to do this? Like, do I really want to sit in a sound studio? Like, and then I'm like, well, he's dispensing advice. I kind of like that. And then when they had the guests on of, um, you know, like the voice guests that would come on the old, you know, they'd have some, you know, famous actor play a call in. I'm thinking, I don't want to do a call in. I want to interview people. And then, you know, where the universe is fun. I got a new office and who is in the office above me, but Larry King. Wow. So I'm like, okay, all right. I get it. Like, I know I go up and down the elevator. Max was three years old and Larry would be in the elevator and he'd be, he was such a nice man. And he was so friendly to my kids who came in the office a lot. And my kids were, you know, two years old and four-year-old. Nobody's going to be like, oh boy, we want them running around, but he was upstairs and I was downstairs. So it was better. But, um, you know, I think that there's signs out there Not that we have to make every decision by a sign, but I do think there's big signs out there that tell you it's time. Did you have any of those signs that just said it's time? Well, I had a lot of signs and and I, one of them was not a happy sign because I was laid off. You know, I'd been an acquisitions editor for for years and I was at the top of my game. I was running acquisitions for a, a, a nice publisher and you know, I came to work one day a week before Christmas and they called me and said, okay. And I'm like, really? <laughs> I mean, I was completely, I was completely stunned. And, it, wow. and this, I shouldn't have been because this happens all the time. I was, you know, 55. And, you know, once you hit 50, especially in media, yep. I'm, you know, right. You know, that's it, you know? And, and so I thought, oh dear, now what do I do? I, I was not really prepared, you know? So I went home and um, thank God I had taken up yoga and done my yoga teacher training so I could do a lot of yoga. And our mutual friend, Gina Panettieri, who was my agent at the time, yeah. she, you know, she read a blog I wrote. Apparently, I wrote a very pathetic blog about, you know, it was winter and my dog was dying and I had no job and I was 55. And I don't know what I said, but she called me on the phone. She said, oh, dear, you need something to do. You should be an agent. And I thought, I can't be an agent. I'm not a salesperson. I'm an editorial person. You know, I'm a storyteller. I'm a story seller. I'm not a, you know, I can't do this. And she said, oh, yeah, you can. Just send me a, um, a bio and a headshot. And so I did, because you should always do what your agent tells you. So I right. did. And a week later, I had a thousand queries in my inbox from, from writers who wanted me to help sell their work. So right. I had this new career, bingo, overnight. 
<laughs> and so it was great because even it, it took the worst thing that ever happened to me career-wise and it became the best thing that ever happened to me career-wise. And I think a lot of times that's the way it goes. Yep. Right? I have a completely new life. That was 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago now. Now, I've, you know, everything has changed in my life. At the time I was single, I didn't have a significant other. I didn't really want a significant other. I was living alone because my children had all grown and gone. I was, you know, miles away from my parents who were in Las Vegas. I, I didn't have a job. I had a house uh, that I couldn't afford without a good job. And I didn't know what to do with myself. Yeah. And, and now, nine years later, here I am. I've got a husband, a lovely husband. I have a wonderful big house with my, where my parents are living with us now. Of course, just my mom. My children and grandchildren come to visit. I have the job of my dreams, plus a career as a mystery novelist as well. So that all came as a result of the worst thing that happened to me was getting laid off. I love that. I love that. Like, I just love that. Cause you know, when I, um, before I started radio, my, that's when my kids were born, you know, two and a half months old and three years old when my husband walked out and I wrote a pathetic blog. I actually wrote a blog. How I got started in radio is I wrote this blog that was all about, I picked up a shape magazine, remember shape magazine. And they had this like, you know, thinner thighs in 30 days and you're going to get this. So I'm like, I'm going to do this full body makeover. And, and they said, Oh, well, you need to journal, you know, make your little notes as you go. And I'm like, Nope, I'm going to blog my experience. And I was getting fatter. My, you know, life was falling apart around my ears. I'm getting called into court now. You know, my company's being researched for fraud, which, you know, was, was nothing happened with any of this, but my whole world was crumbling down around my ears and I was making fun of it, but not fun. It was the only way I could deal with it. And that's how I got contacted by a radio group. Who's like, you know, we've been following your blog. You're hilarious. Do you want to do a blog or do you want to do a radio show on motherhood? And I never woke up wanting to have this type of career, but it's the best thing that ever happened to me. And now 16, 17 years later, it's a completely different life. Right, right. Well, I also think that part of that, you know, for both of us was we both wrote something that was true. True. (laughs) It was true. And we didn't hold back about what had happened to us or how we felt about it. And people relate to that that's why they read i mean people read for the same reason they go to the movies or go to see theater they want to be moved yep right and and they can't be moved unless they identify with the characters and they go on that journey with you and so it's a great lesson for all writers just to be honest those honest emotions and you and then you will evoke those emotions in your reader and then readers will respond to you in a good way That's wonderful. Yeah. Cause I, you know, people have always said to me, like, why are you, you know, why are you telling people your husband left you? Like, aren't you embarrassed? And I'm like, you know why? It's because it didn't occur to me to lie about it. Like if I lied about it, I would have to live this inauthentic life. It's like, yeah, he did leave. Yeah. He did walk out. I wasn't good enough for him. You know what I mean? Like, that doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Doesn't mean like, you know, other people can read all these things into it, but I have to own my own story. And I think when you write, don't you have to own that story? You do. I mean, I wrote a memoir uh, about 10 years ago now, well, 2010. So, and it was a, it was a 
called Fixing Freddy. And it was a dog memoir, a true story about a boy, a mom, and a very, very bad beagle. And it was, it was, took place the year after a very difficult custody battle. Um, I was broke. I had this kid. He we were both broken. We were both, you know, devastated. And it was really ultimately a story about us and how we became a family with this terrible puppy that I bought for him, <laughs> that he insisted on having. And it, what's interesting about it is that I learned writing a memoir that you have to tell the truth and that, um, you know, because you have real people in it, right? My ex-husband was in it, you know? And, and so I had to be as hard on myself as I was on everybody else in the book. Right. My whole family. And in doing that, I realized that, you know, some, some hard truths about myself, some good truths and some hard truths. And, and that was great. It was great for me, you know, and, and by writing that book 12 years later, the ex-husband who was the villain in that book, I married him. Like we got back together. We, that would never have happened if I hadn't written this book. Right. And worked through all of the things like because there's so many things in motion there. Yeah. You've got your kid, you've got or you've got the kid, you've got the dog, you've got the new life, you've got the hurt, you've got the putting the old life to rest. You've got the you know, is it going to be the villain victim, you know, triangle where you've got the hero, the villain and the victim like you're going to play the villain and is some guy going to save you and your ex-husband's the hero. And then as you draw all that on paper or you think on paper or create on paper or dream on paper all of a sudden the truth does come out yes it does it, and the truth the truth really will set you free i mean yeah. there's something that, that's really true for all of us in in small ways and in large ways uh, the truth is important and the fact that you're able to look at yourself and your life with clear eyes really does free you to imagine the next act of your life but you have to own where you are to yep. get somewhere new. Absolutely. Well, Paula, how can people find your books? Oh, they, you know, every bookstore, Amazon, you know, BNN.com, your local independent bookstore. They all have my, my books, my, um, my mystery books. This is the latest one, the hiding place book three in the mercy car series. For those of you who do want to write, I have three books on writing. I own them yeah. all, so buy them. Shameless plug. You did not appear on my show for anything other than I love you. They are the best books ever. Yes. Three books on writing and, and a book on happiness, which is maybe my favorite, Happier Every Day, which yeah. is full of all kinds of research on why, we, why we're happy, why we're unhappy, and, and small things we could do to be happier every day. I think all of us need a little more happiness, and writing is one way to get there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Paula Mounier, thank you so much for being my guest today. Again, we've got other episodes, so go ahead and Google her name under uh, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Play, you name it, we're out there. Go ahead and pick up copies of her books. You will be glad you did. They are engaging. They're enthralling. They're fun. They'll make you cry. They'll make you laugh. You'll fall in love all over again. They've got everything in there. We talk about the kitchen sink, but you've done it very well. We'll be back again next week with another great interview thank you so thank you for listening on behalf of sandra beck we want you to get out there today to make more money with less time and effort so you can live the life you want 
Tune in next week for more tips, tricks, and techniques on Coach Talk Radio.